0: It's a scientific fact that, that technology performs differently across different groups and there's, there's lots of evidence we can draw on to, to justify that. Now, now we know that, so then what happens if we introduce a biased technology into the public and there's nothing that's being done to mitigate that? So once you introduce that, you are knowingly introducing a biased technology that has the potential to discriminate.
1: Live facial recognition has been a widely debated topic in the last couple of decades, both in the UK and internationally. While several campaign organizations advocate against the use of this technology based on prohibition of discrimination, independent academic research on this topic reveals a very important insights into various trials of this technology. And for our discussion today, we are very excited to have Dr. Dar Mare, Senior Lecturer at the Human Rights Center of, and School of Law, University of Essex, and Pete Fasse, Professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Essex, as I esteem guests. Dr. Mare specializes in international human rights law and the law of armed conflict. He has a particular interest in the use of artificial intelligence and other advanced technologies, particularly in an intelligence agency and law enforcement context. He has been awarded a UKR Future Leaders Fellowship to examine the impact of artificial intelligence on on individual development and functioning of democratic societies. This four-year project began in January 2020 and has a particular emphasis on law enforcement, intelligence agency, and military artificial intelligence applications. Previous research examined the relationship between human rights law and the law of armed conflict and the regulation and engagement of non-state armed groups. Professor Fassi's research focuses on surveillance, human rights and technology, digital sociology, algorithmic justice, intelligence oversight, technology and policing, and urban studies. He has published widely across these areas. He's a director of the Center for Research into Information, Surveillance, and Privacy, a collaboration between surveillance res- researchers at the University of St. Andrews, Edinburgh, Stirling, and Essex and Research Director for the ESRC Human Rights, Big Data Technology Project. As part of this project, Professor Fassi leads research teams empirically analyzing digital security strategies in the US, UK, Brazil, India, and Germany. Finally, Pete also leads the human rights and ethics strand of the UK Biometrics and Surveillance Camera Commissioner's National Strategy. Our speakers today have made a highly relevant contribution to live facial recognition research by co-authoring an independent report on London's Metropolitan Police trial of live facial recognition technology. Daragh and Pete, welcome. Looking forward to your insights from the University of Cambridge and the Centre of Governance and Human Rights. I am Mariam Tanveer, your host for this episode. This is Declarations. I am also joined by Veronica, an MPhil student in Politics and International Studies, who will be leading the discussion. Welcome, Veronica.
2: Okay, so the use of live facial recognition technology is a highly debated and maybe even controversial topic nowadays. Could you briefly tell us a bit more about what exactly is this technology? What's your take on the matter? And why is it important to look at it from a human rights perspective?
0: I think the first place to start when we're uh, talking about facial recognition technology is to understand a bit like when we talk about machine learning or AI, that we're actually talking about a collection of different technologies or it's a similar technology with different functions and different architecture underpinning it so i think there's lots of different ways of looking at it but i think the easiest way is to think of three different types of technology there's what's known as kind of one-to-one facial recognition technology verification technologies these are these are things like when you open your smartphone using your face for instance or go through passport gates at a border or something like that and those generally don't need a database. They're just trying to match you against yourself. Um, And then there's the other forms of um, facial recognition, which are what we call one to many systems, or one ratio to one colon Then the ratio of one to many. And that's things like live facial recognition where you have a camera in a public space and it monitors people that walk by and and compares the images of people who walk by against the database. and there's generally two variants of this. There's, there's the live stuff that Dara and I looked at, but then there's the retrospective analysis, which is more common in the US when they talk about facial recognition. That's when, um, say, a crime has happened. They've got surveillance camera footage and they run that against software that compares, compares it against databases. So the different types, they have slightly different implications, you know, one, too many needs a database, there's issues of collateral intrusion and so on that, that come into play, whereas one-to-one it's just matching you against yourself. So I think that's the basic place to start. And then in the live facial recognition, that brings in all kinds of, uh, of issues around the deployment of that in, in public spaces. It's widely seen to be more intrusive. Um, Than other forms of surveillance technology, particularly, you know, in, in lots of ways, it's more intimate in terms of what it takes from you, but also its breadth in terms of, you know, processing the images of, of many, many thousands of people. And um, I'll hand to Dara to, to talk about human rights implications in more detail because he's, he's more specialist in that area.
3: Thanks, Peter. Um, Just building on that, I guess I think it's important to emphasise that just like there are different types of facial recognition technology, so you talked about like verification and one to many. I think it's really important to remember as well that facial recognition is deployed across a spectrum. So when we think of facial recognition, say in the UK, live facial recognition is typically deployed at a static location for a specific period of time. So, for example, in Wales. Was deployed outside a um, outside concerts or Welsh rugby matches, whereas at the other end of the spectrum, you have very different types of deployments. So, like in China with the repression of the Uyghurs, you have kind of c- um, facial recognition algorithms built into CCTV networks that conduct you know an almost permanent monitoring and scanning of the population, and that can do analysis on that basis. So, it's really important to think of facial recognition not just as a I suppose it's important to think of it not as a one-size-fits-all thing. We have not only different types of verification or identification, but different types of deployment. And they obviously lead to very different um, impacts. In terms of why human rights, well, I think the important thing for me is that facial recognition technology has the potential to be an incredibly invasive surveillance tool. And it has the potential to, um, to really change the balance of power between the state and the, and the citizen. So, if we think of very extensive surveillance regimes in the past, like the Stasi in East Germany, you know, when you had a huge number of individuals co- co-opted into the state surveillance regime, the extent of surveillance that was p- possible then really is m- uh, minuscule, or you know, is incredibly limited when compared to the extent of surveillance that would be possible through um, running facial recognition across the cities. CCTV networks, you know, um, and conducting analysis on it. So I think that's why it's really important to consider the human rights impacts, because it really gives rise to a huge number of human rights concerns. I think the challenge for us is that we've typically looked at human rights after the fact. So if you think of most ways we examine human rights, it's somebody um, thinks that they've undergone a human rights violation, it goes to court. Um, if it's in the European system, you know, it might get to the European Court of Human Rights eight years later. And the problem with that is, A, that it's eight years later, but also B, that you're looking at really one specific component. You know, typically it's what violation did this person experience rather than looking at the system as a whole. And so the big challenge for us when thinking about facial recognition as human rights is to get ahead of the curve. It's to stop. And before we get into deployments, um, think about, well, what is the impact of this? You know, do we want to go ahead? You know, is the risk too high? Do we need to pause? Until we know more, say, about bias and discrimination in the technology, or do we need to regulate it in a particular way? Um, And I think that's where human rights has a lot to offer. You know, it's not just about assessing impacts. It's about overseeing appropriate use.
0: Yeah. And just to chime in there, I think think that's such an important point that, you know, when we often think about surveillance technologies in society, we, we tend to bookend Their use, really, that's where we what we focus on. Either right at start or or afterwards, as Dara says, you know. So it's either, you know, as he says about sort of, you know, where we deal with these things in in a kind of adversarial um, sense afterwards through through the courts or, or whatever, or. What, what commonly happens with other forms of, of police surveillance or security surveillance is the focus is on authorisation and whether they should be authorised in the first place. Now, what often happens, particularly with complicated technologies, is the use of and their, their, their capability can, can change during the course of an operation, for example. So there really needs to be some proper um, and detailed thinking about the whole life cycle use of these technologies. And it doesn't just end when operations end. You know, there's a review stage about whether it helps meet the um, policing need and things like that that then can be used to inform um, judgments or assessments of future deployments. So when we talk about oversight and regulation, it really needs to think about, you know, the... the First, the operational realities, but also the life cycle of, of operational use.
2: Thank you so much. This, this definitely makes sense. So thank you so much for, for this brief outline. Now, uh, in order to dive a bit deeper into your research on the use of live facial recognition in the UK, uh, in July 2019, you've co-authored um, an independent report on the London Metropolitan Police Services trial of live facial recognition technology. Um, could you tell us a bit more about the findings of this report?
0: In essence, the the Metropolitan Police Service were trialling facial recognition technology and they've been trialling it since 2016. They they had the first two deployments at the Notting Hill Carnival, which is Europe's biggest sort of street party, I guess you get. Around about one and a half to two million people on the street over three days, and it's a at the end of August. It's a celebration of African Caribbean culture. So you know, given the history of policing in London, it's it's not without controversy to, to deploy the technology in this this context. And then so. As they were going through these these trials, they then sort of, we had a discussion with them about doing an independent review, focusing on the human rights aspects, but also some of the operational and policing aspects of it as well. So that's kind of how it started. Now, in terms of our approach, one of the ways in which... I mean, speaking for myself, but I hope Tara agrees with me. Uh, one of the ways in which we've we worked effectively together, and I at least have enjoyed working with him, has been that there's a complementarity in our approach. So I'm not a lawyer, I'm a, I'm a sociologist, social scientist. So a lot of my work takes from the philosophy of science, where we, we <clears throat> argue that you know technology doesn't just assert certain impact. We can't just assume what impact technology will have. You have to understand it in the environments in which it's deployed. For instance, it's shaped by occupational culture, individual ability, the way that, you know the, the sort of material realities in which people are operating with, and all of these things. And that, and, and to put that in concrete terms, you know, some of the impacts and implications of, of surveillance technologies you can't really anticipate. It's only when they're being used you kind of you figure out, you know, well, what's problematic or what's not. So that sociological approach or anthropological approach really helps to uncover some of those kind of nuances and how it's used in operation now then working with Dara, Dara sort of was able to bring this kind of really sort of concrete human rights uh, legal vocabulary to, to trying to understand the implications of some of these sort of more detailed processes so that's kind of the approach which I think you know methodologically work, works really well um, and in terms of findings there, there were a number of elements really we looked you know, we, we had a mix of ethnographic research and also document analysis and also interviews as well. Found a number of different things. Some, Daryl talked about the legal aspects and to, you know, the authorization and, and those sorts of things and the ways in which an implicit legal basis was sought and, and so on. But th- some of the other findings were around the, the policing uses, for example, there are a lot of claims and counterclaims around its effectiveness. Um, and it's its operational and technical ability, which we were able to interrogate and challenge actually quite a lot of that. and also in terms of how officers use the technology. so there's a lot of talk about using digital technology as a way of supporting decision making but not making decisions for police officers. So if someone is deemed suspicious, you know, using the technology to help with that decision whereas actually if you look at how the technology is used in, in reality it's much more complex than that that humans are deferential to, to the algorithm to what the computer decides so there's all this stuff in the Data Protection Act and in the Law Enforcement Directive companion of the GDPR which which talks about having meaningful human adjudication of algorithmic processes but actually when we start to think about what that word meaningful means you can start to see that actually there is adjudication but it's, it's not meaningful So those were sort of some of the social science-y kind of aspects that we dug into and then Dara sort of, I guess you'll be better equipped to talk about many more of the legal and human rights implications. Yeah, I kind of feel like I should say I I
3: liked working with you too now. Um, (laughs) But it is genuinely, that is I think one of the nice parts of working together and combining human rights law and social science is that human rights gives you that overarching framework or human rights law does. Whereas the social sciences and sociology and criminology really help to flesh it out and to understand how it applies in context, so that gives you a richness that you wouldn't get if you didn't have like, the interdisciplinary approach, and like we wouldn't have been able to do this work either of us individually. You know, it would have been very different. Um, in terms of human rights law, so I'll break it down a little bit. I think for me, kind of human rights are the human rights law findings, I guess. And um, for me, there's two really important parts of human rights law that are relevant. The first is that um, when you undertake an an activity that interferes with the human rights, so surveillance using facial recognition and biometric processing of individual data unquestionably interferes with the human rights, you perform a three-part test to evaluate whether that interference is lawful or not. Um, The three parts essentially are the first that it's in accordance with the law the second, that it pursues a legitimate aim. And the third, that it's necessary in a democratic society. And I'll come back to those in a second. Um, the second big thing to flag is that human rights law is all about really the protection against arbitrary interference with rights. So it's the human rights law at its core, I think, is designed to protect the individual against arbitrary rights and interferences by the state. And these two components really played out throughout the report. So I won't talk much about the arbitrary rights element. Because a lot of that is kind of what Pete was talking about and how watch was informed, you know how people deferred or not to the algorithm. you know it's all that kind of inconsistencies that arise throughout the process. But in terms of the, the human rights law specifically, um, one of our big conclusions addressed the in accordance with the law test. So the idea of the in accordance with the law test is to protect against arbitrary rights and interferences. So it's the idea that the law should be foreseeable as to um, how it's being applied and its consequences. And that was a big question mark here, essentially because there's no law regulating the use of live facial recognition technology. There's no law that says you can use it in these circumstances for these crimes on these locations. So it's a big open area. And the only law that's really there um, and the thing that the Met police relied on a lot is the common law and um, kind of common law policing powers. But they essentially say that you can undertake um, activity to protect the public, policing activity to protect the public, you know, which is incredibly broad. So for us, there is no real um, definition around how you would limit the exercise of authority or power by the state. In order to ensure that the that the use of facial recognition was you know was foreseeable, did protect against arbitrariness. So our first conclusion kind of was a, a relatively dramatic one, and we 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 concluded that it was unlikely that the Met's deployments of live facial recognition technology would be lawful. And um, we found essentially that they would be inconsistent with the Human Rights Act. Um, that's never been kind of examined in a court, but. A similar, the the Court of Appeal, I think, in 2020 um, did find that a similar deployment by South Wales police um, failed to comply with that in accordance with the law requirement for very similar reasons. Um, And so that's a really interesting point now, I think, in 2022, I was about to say 21, because we lost two years of our life. Um, But in 2022, because the Met have now started using facial recognition again, but that legal framework... Um, the underlying legislation isn't there. So I think that's a really important issue to focus on now. And the second component to address then is the necessary in a democratic society test. And so essentially that's about competing interests. So the police have an interest as we do in them protecting public order and so on. And that will compete or conflict sometimes with other rights like the right to privacy in this instance, potentially the right to freedom of expression or association um, or assembly, you know, if it's in the context of a protest, for example, what the necessary in a democratic society test really requires is that you demonstrate why it's necessary to deploy the technology in pursuit of a legitimate aim when considered against the potential harm. That's a long-winded way, essentially, of saying that you have to demonstrate both the utility of the deployment and the potential harm, and that's what allows you to evaluate the competing interests. You know, you have to know why it's useful and how it's potentially harmful to reach a decision. And what we found really is that the police did not do a great job of demonstrating why the technology was useful. Um, so we, we found that there wasn't really a good evidence base for it. You know, why? how was it explained, for example, that facial recognition would be useful in combating particular crimes? Why was it important to deploy facial recognition technology at a particular pace, at a particular time. You know, so there wasn't really the the, the lack of um, evidence or justification there. And then that all really comes down to, I think, something that's really important for me. Um, it was the lack of a pre-deployment assessment. So before the police sat down to think about we're going to... to um, deploy facial recognition technology, in my view, they didn't really effectively consider all of the options, you know, and think of how, th- how things would play out. And I'll finish with an example of that. And that's the fact that maybe people talk about kind of this into more detail, but it's widely known that facial recognition technology has issues to do with bias. You know, it's widely known that facial recognition technology deploys differently depending on different protected characteristics such as gender, age, so on. Um, And what wasn't conducted effectively was a kind of pre-deployment impact assessment to see, okay, well, you know, what is the risk of discrimination? What is the risk of indirect discrimination? And can we still legitimately use that tool? And I think that's kind of a good, hopefully a good overview of of our findings. But really, it all centers around the idea that before the technology was deployed, kind of the thinking and the impact assessments weren't conducted effectively.
0: Another finding which um that came out of it as well was around effectiveness and and sort of really taking some scrutiny to a lot of the claims that, that are made about, you know, the 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 very excessive claims about the effectiveness of this technology and you know the history of of technology and policing is kind of littered with with hubris. It's littered with these claims that, that overstate the potential. And, you know, I remember this when CCTV was introduced, which is what I did my PhD on, and would have zero crime now if it was as effective as everyone said. But um, <clears throat> I'm sure we'll get into that in, in a bit, because that, that connects with questions about necessity and proportionality as well, I guess. The other thing I'd just add to what Tara was saying, I think there's something really interesting about when new technology is introduced in policing contexts, because often given this very softened vocabulary of, well, it's just the trial. So I, I actually observed some South Wales police operations as well. And there's this language of a trial, which somehow seems to legitimate it more than an active deployment. We were quite careful in our report not to call these, these deployments trials because they weren't, they were operational deployments. They weren't. And, you know, something that struck me was I spoke to the biometrics commissioner at the time um, before doing the work, and he said this publicly as well, but he said that when, you know, he's a scientist, he was a former chief scientific advisor at the Home Office, and he was saying that, you know, when we're scientists trying to evaluate something, you kind of, or trial something, you're trying to see if something, you have a proper methodology, you test what it is against that methodology, and you see if it works or not, and if it doesn't work, you say so. And his view was that when the police... Trial something. They're not doing that. They're trying to just basically find a justification for using that technology in, in practice. So they'll use it in different ways and then find a justification. And, you know, I was a little bit skeptical and when he said that, but that that's exactly what, what we found in this. There was a methodology for testing the technical effectiveness of this technology, which was insufficient and scientifically invalid, which I'll talk about in more detail. But then they have this whole other category. Of evaluating technology of whether it meets a policing purpose, which is so broad and unspecified, it's kind of meaningless as well. So, so it's it's a really sort of problematic area when we kind of accept. It's a, it's a very much a kind of thin end of the wedge argument that we accept technology because it's just been trialed. But what we mean by trial in the scientific community or even the vernacular sort of public understanding of is what then police use of that that phrase is, is very different and it has very different different implications.
2: Great. Thank you so much for all these insights. Um, I think it's great that you've had the chance to look at this from an interdisciplinary perspective as well. So these are very valuable findings. Um, Now, um, I know that you've been also hinting at this quite a bit, but uh, in the context of your findings, do you have any recommendations on how live facial recognition technology uh, should be implemented in the future? Or do you think it might be better to refrain from using it at all?
3: I, I think in answering that, I think for me, if I, if I step first, I think both things, I think, like adopting a human rights approach. It's kind of builds on what I was saying earlier, you know, this idea that if we're going to use a technology, particularly one that has the potential to be so invasive and to really, you know, potentially, I'm using potentially kind of very deliberately to change the balance of power between the state and the citizen, we should know what we're doing. So I think what's needed is a real shift change in approach. And that's kind of builds on what Pete was just saying as well. The idea that, you know, things should be trialed properly and rigorously and um, all, all of that should be done effectively. But also we should think through each specific facial recognition deployment or each type of deployment that we would like and work out the human rights impacts. And then on the basis of that particular deployment, decide whether it's legitimate or not. And so I'll give you an example. You know, one potential deployment of facial recognition technology could be at the border. You know, as you go and you give in your passport, it's possible that facial recognition technology could be used to to check you against a watch list of people who are, say, known that are likely to enter the country and we might want to keep an eye out for. We can think through the implications of that um, and see if it's desirable or not. Um, You know, work out and assess the analysis. Um, and reach one conclusion. That's a very different scenario, say, to deploying facial recognition, even at a standalone, just at a protest. You know, I, I think that brings in a whole load of other rights implications, um, it has a potential chilling effect around the right to protest, um, has a potential, you know, uh, corroding effect on a democracy by reducing uh, vibrancy, I guess, or political opposition. And again, another step beyond that is the idea of deploying facial recognition technology across the CCTV network. Um, And I think the important thing to bear in mind is that when we talk about deploying facial recognition technology in all of these contexts, that's only one part of the picture. The other part of the picture is that allows you to perform analysis on that data. So you can not only identify who was at a protest, potentially, you know, if you go back against driver's license records or something, but you can also then build up a profile of that person. You know, they were at this protest on Tuesday. They were at this meeting the next Thursday. They traveled to Guildford on the Friday. You know, it allows you to develop a profile. So for me, it's understanding each of those particular deployments and conducting a human rights analysis on that basis. So kind of I'm reluctant to say outright there's no situation in which you can use facial recognition. But I think it's if we do that in analysis, you know, we're going to reach a lot of situations where you definitely should not use facial recognition but for me it's important to kind of break it down and take it case by case Um, the only caveat I guess to that is until we know whether the technology discriminates or not or how to address it rather we do know that it discriminates it just shouldn't be used you know you shouldn't use a tool as a public authority that has the the potential to discriminate you know that's kind of 101 of human rights law and so that one for me would be the initial red line and then after that, it's kind of a, it's a case by case thing. But it's important that we do that analysis beforehand, because I think with all these types of tools, if we don't, you know, there's a creeping um, normalization and acceptance. And if they just become a part of life. And I think the risk is that we sleepwalk into a very different type of society.
0: Yeah, just, just to just add to a couple of things to that. I mean, I think you know, was D- right. I agree. I agree. Well everything you said pretty much and um yeah i think one of the the issues is if you think about how it's deployed at the moment and what authorities or whoever wants to use it what they need to do in order to use it generally the only real as far, obviously there's the issues around the explicit legal basis that the has talked about but at the moment one of the the core requirements is is um through the data protection act and, and and uh, fulfilling a data protection impact assessment, and you know, data protection is such a narrow way of understanding the surveillance harms or the harms that come from this kind of surveillance. It's very, very restrictive, and and just you know strips out a lot of the other things that people are concerned about, and that have a real impact on on life and everyday life and people's rights, and and so on. So I think that's kind of one of the things. And then related to that, you know, the kind of purpose which Dara touched on, you know, often, there's often this very sort of palliative discourse around facial recognition. There's a lot of, a lot of sort of things are said that kind of soften the vocabulary of surveillance and harm where they're, so for example, often it's stated, well, what about using it for terrorism if there's an imminent terrorist attack? Or what about for child protection and child sexual abuse? And, you know that yeah you know fine that but then but then it's not used for that though you know none of the operations we saw it, was it even remotely used for any of those purposes and even if it was you could still have a discussion about using alternative means that don't biometric process 20,000 people at a time that will pass the camera or or whatever so you know i think that specificity is really important and we often see that kind of language slippage in the justification for this technology not just in public discourse but in legal documentation uh, that justifies its use and so on we've seen it in parliamentary debate and it's really common and it's really important to to have precision over that which i guess from you know those of you, you know, Dara, who, who focus more on sort of legalistic aspects around human rights these things are really important for necessity proportionality understanding utility and harm and all of these sorts of things the this the second thing is about whether we should use it we simply don't have any oversight or regulation of it there's none and or there's none that that has any regulatory power so there's data protection so the ICO um, is there but the harms extend beyond that and there's controversy around that issue the current sort of oversight mechanism is enshrined in the Protection of Freedoms Act 2012 which there's the Office of the Biometrics and Surveillance Camera Commissioner which, you know, I, I do quite a lot of work with and who, you know, whatever intentions the postholder has, there's no regulatory power there at all, really. They can't find people or stop people using it particularly. And then I think that the sort of other element, which Dara sort of talked about, which just, just to add a small point to it, is, you know, about discrimination and bias. So it is a scientific fact that facial recognition algorithms are not equally capable across different demographic groups now obviously race and ethnicity is one of those age is another so young like babies for instance like have less biometric information in their face than people like me who are in my 40s in their 40s for instance so there is obviously I'm <laughs> on top the opposite ends of the spectrum there but there is there is a gradation of effectiveness depending on age gender is another one where we can talk a lot about you know transgender rights and, and issues around that as well so it's a scientific fact that, that technology performs differently across different groups, and there's, there's lots of evidence we can draw on to, to justify that. Now now we know that, so then what happens if we introduce a biased technology into the public and there's nothing that's being done to mitigate that? So once you introduce that, you are knowingly introducing a biased uh, technology that has the potential to discriminate. And unless you sort of are, are A, aware of that, and B, mitigate it, then I, I can't see how it is justifiable
3: when I was talking earlier about this idea of a pre-deployment impact assessment and thinking through whether a deployment is, um, you know, going to be human rights compliant and whether we should do it or not. One of the big questions is alternative means. So what else can you do? Um, Is there a different way of doing the same thing? And I think um, that's a really important point to kind of to build out on. So with facial recognition technology or any other like kind of mass surveillance system, you really change um, the relationship between the police and the citizen. And um, so, whereas before you have this idea of community policing and people, you know, going door to door and working with the community, um, and then addressing something that arises with these kind of mass surveillance tools, you time, you entirely flip that. You know, you monitor the entire population more or less, and you try to identify. You treat them all as suspicious and try to flag and highlight suspicious behavior that you then go and investigate. You know. So, it's really a fundamental shift in how you have um, how kind of this the citizen and the police are, you know, people and the police interact. And that's something, you know, that we shouldn't take lightly either. You know, if we're going to do that, it's something you, you definitely want a conversation about, you know. So, I, I think it kind of highlights the fact that we start chatting about facial recognition technology, you know, as this uh, thing that's deployed in a particular context at Oxford Circus or whatever. And then all of a sudden, it spreads out to changing the relationship um, between the state and the citizen. But it's it's a really important thing that this is the this is the front end of kind of remote biometric identification technologies. You know, this is stage one, so it's really important that we address these questions now.
0: That's such an important point, Dara, I think. And from a, from a sort of sociological point of view, the, the sociological studies of policing since the 1960s have really talked, you know, really honed in and focused on the issue of suspicion and how we identify suspicion. And you're right, Dara, there's something really fundamentally different about the kinds of suspicion and the way suspicion is formed by using these mass surveillance and intrusive surveillance devices. Now if you want to stop someone on the street at a normal police citizen encounter you know that's kind of regulated or, or permitted really by Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984 and it's hundreds of iterations afterwards, and there's a legislative basis for that. We can disagree on on the degree of protections it gives, but there is something there. Whereas, and, and there is a requirement, in, with some exceptions, there is a most, mostly a requirement for reasonable suspicion before stopping someone. This operates totally different in terms of ingesting everybody for biometric processing and then excluding people on the basis of them not being suspicious. You know, for for the the report we did we interviewed Silky Carlo from Big Brother Watch and, you know, maybe we, we might differ on some areas, but I thought she had a really effective analogy for this. Um, so, you know, I want to credit her with it because it's her idea, but she she argues that it's essentially, you know, conceptually, it's the same thing as asking everybody to think to print scan go into a particular public space and then discounting the people who, who aren't on a database. And we wouldn't accept that. But there's something about... There's something really interesting about the proximity of surveillance and the way in which we internalise its intrusivity and its intrusiveness by by whether we see it and we we have to physically engage with it or not. But it doesn't mean the intrusion isn't there. Um, So I think it's it's really interesting, you know, certainly from a sociological point of view, to start really sort of scratching away at this issue of suspicion and how that's formulated and, and subtly, but also fundamentally changed by the introduction of these technologies.
2: Great. Thank you so much for, for highlighting how this uh, different deployments of this technology can impact various types of people differently, uh, also depending on the context, but also based uh, on some of its negative effects or biases. Uh, now, to further build on that, uh, how much of a say do you think should the public have on the use of live facial recognition? And is the public well informed enough uh, about the technology and its biases? Could you Could you please expand a bit more on that?
0: I mean, I, I have a flippant answer, and I could say not at all, but <laughs> but I think yeah, I think we overstate. Um, you know, the, the sort of public opinion on this is is overused as a justification for using these sorts of technologies. You know, I can see. You know, both of us were in lots of planning meetings and pre-operation meetings with the police, and. You know and, and and genuinely you know a lot that there are people who are operating in good faith there is a genuine belief that they you know through common law powers that Dara talked about and so on that trying to keep the public safe um and there is a genuine belief that well you know i have the powers to keep the public safe most people want to, us to use this now obviously from a human rights point of view there's a clash between this very utilitarian sense of, of what's in the public interest with with a kind of human rights-focused approach. Because if you took that approach, that utilitarian approach, then we would never have minority rights or protection of minorities and and things like that. And, you know, all of the research on surveillance... Like all of it pretty much kind of says, you know, it's not white male middle class professors like me that have to worry about it. It's people who are on the on the margins of society. Those already over policed are the people who are most intensively surveilled. And that's, you know, that's also that that's a sociological fact. So so these utilitarian appeals to public opinion are, are really problematic. Of course, it's important um But then at the same time, it has to be t- this kind of enthusiasm has to be tempered. Now, also, Veronica, you made a really interesting point about how informed people are as well. Which, you know, so I've studied, I first wrote about facial recognition technology in 2009, 2010, and I don't know, you know, its uses. And, and you know, I find it, you know, really, really complicated and difficult to comprehend. And, you know, I did a PhD in, in, in science technology, and, you know, and it's, it's like it's beyond the grasp of of, of most people including me you know in terms of trying to understand the nuanced implications of of these things so it's very difficult to have an informed informed opinion and often public opinion or the way public opinion is leveraged in these contexts is this idea there's several assumptions built into it one the people support it and that's not really tested like Know how how is that known? What through what some people say on Twitter or or what you know, so so what is the proper research on that? There is some which I can go into. So that's that's one assumption, and then the other assumption that's often embedded in these recourse to to public opinion is this belief that it works. So, right, we just have to accept intrusive technology, but it will solve all our problems. And you know, could talk at length about the evaluation of this technology, but but, but but actually, it doesn't. It, it really doesn't work in the way that it's been claimed. I mean, even if it works really well in a lab, it may not. It doesn't have the same capability in public. It's what evaluative researchers and, and psychologists, for instance, in, in particular, call this ecological validity. That something that works in a test environment then the extent to which it works in the real world setting to which it's deployed and there are real problems of ecological validity with facial recognition technology so this assumption that it that it, will, that it will actually work and there's no harm to it it's a really problematic thing that's embedded a lot of the time in these conversations when we talk about public opinion but I'll, I'll hand over to Dara. I think he pretty much covered everything really like I think the the only
3: thing I'd add is that it is important to think of public opinion if we look at it from a slightly different perspective, as in if the police are going to consider deploying it, there should be some form of community engagement. And that's so to understand the particularities of particular communities and to protect minority rights. And I think when that and I guess it's more of a case of what happens when that doesn't occur than, than when it when it does. So when it doesn't occur, you, you risk um you know, increasing alienation from the state and increasing uh, a dissonance between the community and the police. So like the example of the first Met police trial of facial recognition is a, is a really good example, you know, deploying it at Notting Hill Street Carnival and um, without any prior community engagement and without explaining why, you know, that's obviously going to lead to, to problems um, and a sense of why us, you know, why this location? You know, why not somewhere else? And I think so, really, if you are going to do it, there has to be an engagement around why. Um, But I think all of that is secondary to Pint's points. The the first and I think the most pressing thing is should it be deployed at all? Um, And I think in a lot of instances, we would find that it shouldn't be deployed in instances where communities as communities are going to be affected.
2: Great, thank you so much for for all your answers so far. Indeed, these are very important things to uh, to keep in mind. Um, now, taking a step back to look at the broader picture, uh, what do you think our aims should be regarding live facial recognition in the future? Uh, do you believe that overall this technology could be deployed in a human rights compliant manner? Do you believe in this ideal?
3: I think so. It's a it's it's a yes and a no. I think. As I was saying, you have to look at facial recognition deployments on a case by case basis. Do I think there's a possibility that they could be used in airports? Yes, um, I think there is a possibility. Do would I be comfortable with the idea of facial recognition being deployed, like across a city or even at specific locations in public? I think that's a very different question, um, and I think. My um, kind of dodging the question answer is that at the moment, we just don't know enough to say go ahead. And until we can say we can go ahead in a human rights compliant manner, we shouldn't do it. And I think the big question there is around things like the chilling effect. If we have this technology deployed around towns, um, monitoring people as they go, potentially building profiles, you know, how will that affect behavior? How will it affect individuals' own ability to develop their identity, you know, to become who they want to become, um, and maybe to step outside kind of the beige of society, you know, and then how, how will it affect the function of democracy, you know, how will it affect people's ability to engage with different thoughts, you know, to challenge state policy, to to protest. We don't know any of those things. And those things are, are not minor things, you know, they're not like small rights issues. They're totally central to how we at least think our society should be, you know, whether it is or not is another question, but they're fundamental, you know. And anything that has the potential to interfere with that should be kind of approached with extreme caution. And we're not at the point where we know yet. So I think for the moment, yeah, I was I would fall back on the case by case. But I think my my approach at the moment is look at look you know look at the potential for abuse. You know, look at how China is using the technology to f- facilitate the repression of the Uyghurs. You know, we we don't want to end up there.
0: Yeah, I think you know that. And was right in terms of, you know, focusing on the specificities and that, that precision around all the different elements of its use, you know, the, the purpose of deployment, how it's used, how it's been, whether it's effective or not, what the harm is, collateral intrusion, all of these things, chilling effects, are really, really important. I think, you know, there's, there's obviously a movement from a lot of um, civil society organisations about an outright ban on the technology, which, you know, you can kind of see why people would, Develop that that perspective, particularly given the lack of oversight and and its use without an explicit legal basis, and all, all of those sorts of things. One of one of the challenges I think with making that argument is I think you know if you look at where the investment is in the biometrics industry, it's it's heavily flowing towards facial analytics and you know and, and video analytics that, that look at biometric indicators. So you know I think it, it's going to happen. So then the question is well if, if it's going to be used how can we how can we try to to put the requisite safeguards in you know one of the arguments about it not having a legal base on the problems with that argument is well well what if there's law that just permits it then <laughs> which you know then we're in a different argument and you know i think the the, the perspective that's been brought by organizations like the Ada lovelace institute and, and so on asking for a moratorium on the technology uh, until we sort out a load of these issues and then make a decision over whether it could be used, seems seem sensible to me. You know, in some ways, I think there is. You know, I don't want to over embellish the importance of, uh, of this topic or the work we're doing or whatever, but there there do seem to be parallels with with the the kind of Snowden moment where where there was this kind of moment when Snowden revealed the activities of, of, of bulk surveillance where suddenly we saw what the capabilities of security agencies were and we had to have a proper conversation about right so so how do we address this in society what is permissible what is legal what should they be doing what kind of oversight is needed and all of these questions and you know we got legislation after that in this country the investigatory powers act now we can have a debate about its reach and its effectiveness and all of those things but there is a there is something we can debate you know nothing similar to so that exists in this space of, of, of facial recognition technology. So it's, it's really, really important. So, you know, I think that kind of, um, you know, if we look at other forms of intrusive surveillance, they have authorization regimes that are way more stringent than, than, than facial recognition technology. Look at regulation, investigative powers, sort of intrusive surveillance, targeted surveillance, directed surveillance. All of these things that the police do have a have way higher authorization threshold at the moment. And then the the two other points, really, one related to that is this idea that, you know, even if you have this, this, this kind of infrastructure around it to regulate its use, there will still be, you know, variations, different interpretations of that. And that happens in policing all the time. We've seen that in the policing of the pandemic, how rules get misinterpreted in practice, for instance. You know, Derbyshire Police were using drones to publicly shame people who were going for a walk in and perfectly legally going about their lawful business and doing nothing wrong and they were being shamed by you know so it's so where is the kind of remedy for that and the, and the redress so but, it, but I think that really illustrates the point that technology gives a capability and, and its responsible use and legal use isn't necessarily well understood by different sections of, of the police and community. It might be understood at the top strategic level, but not necessarily at the operational tactical levels. And then I think the final point, which Dara sort of mentioned, I think is so important and it really gets lost in a lot of these debates about surveillance generally, is that, as Dara said, about the chilling effects of surveillance and You know, there are unknown impacts on people. At the time we did our research, the London Police Ethics Panel produced a report on on, on, uh, facial recognition. And in it, there was one really good piece of work in it, which was a a survey of public opinion uh, by Ben Bradford, who's a professor at UCL. And he, you know, in, in this survey, which is a really well designed, you know, robust survey, says that, you know, people under the age of 24, in that age category, nearly 40% of them would feel uncomfortable going to an event that was covered by facial recognition technology. You know, that is enormous, right? So, you know, if you take that to something like, you know, I mean, Glastonbury or something like that, you're talking about tens and tens of thousands of people who are made to feel uncomfortable by state surveillance technology. And... You know, that, that can't just be ignored as, as insignificant, I don't think. So the, So in terms of understanding, you know, I think Dara made this point better, really. But, you know, in terms of understanding the breadth of harm it, it is really important. And that's simply not, A, it's not understood right now, but B, there is no mechanism of which to try and anticipate it. We only have data protection, really, which is, is narrow and inadequate for, for the task
2: great thank you so much for for all these valuable points um these were all our questions for today so once again thank you thank you for chatting to us and thank you for sharing all these valuable insights
1: thank you pete and dharag for all those incredibly valuable insights on live facial recognition technology and its use in the london metropolitan police services trail all the biases and the heuristics And the justifications to use it and the self-fulfilling prophecies that come into operation. This has been an incredibly insightful and exciting podcast. And a big thank you for all our listeners for tuning in. We hope that you've enjoyed today's podcast and that you learned more about the use of this technology in the framework of human rights. When it comes to the future, the use of live facial recognition, making it compliant with human rights standards is still an open and widely debated question. So feel free to share your thoughts with us on this matter. You can find us on Twitter via at Declarations Pod or like us on Facebook. You can also send us an email at the editor at declarationspod.com. You can also check us out at the website declarationspod.com where each podcast has a companion piece and more information about each episode and links to additional resources. These packages are put together by a brilliant show notes writer. Thank you again for listening in. Bye-bye.